Awesome. So let's welcome Christina for week two, self-governance. Hello. Hello. <laughs> All right. Okay, so welcome to week two. Um, I'm going to start by recapping um, just very quickly what I spoke about last week because some things have changed. But before I do, I just want to check, has anybody started to engage the homework? Oh, yeah. All right. Beautiful. I haven't received any emails yet, so that must be a good thing. Okay. <laughs> Awesome. All right, I'm going to jump straight in because I want to make sure I get through it all. Okay, so recap. Last week, um, I, I wanted to lay the foundation of more of a what is. What is self-governance? Because that's what the, the theme of the 10-week uh, series is, self-governance, all about the inner world and, um, you know, covering a lot of topics, as you saw there on the slide. Uh, so just to run through the recap, um, I talked about self-governance being a posture of rest, not one of defence and protection. Um, and self-governance is not simply managing ourselves. Self-governance is governing. And I made a point about, uh, you know, governing requires... Well, governing requires many things, but the three main things I wanted to unpack last week, and I'm going into a little bit deeper today, was that governing requires... Well, good governance requires conviction, it requires um, responsibility and levels of objectivity, right? Because the heart, our inner world, is, a, is, is subject to a very subjective process. And then I, I put up, um, I pretty much based the entire teach last week on Jeremiah 31, 33. So can you just put it up again so I can just refresh everyone's memory? So I said, uh, I'll just, I actually don't have it written down, so I have to wait for it. <laughs> so basically, I, I was unpacking that, here we go. Okay. Um, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, I, so what I was talking about last week was that the Lord has already put his truth. He's written his constitution in us. Okay, so in order to govern well, it needs to be done according to some sort of constitution. And we don't have to bear the impossible responsibility of creating our own constitution outside of him. It is about, <laughs> just, it's all good, it's all good. Um, it, it's, it's about, you know, making all of the, so he's written his constitution in our hearts according to Jeremiah 31, 33. And there have been things that have happened from, you know, through iniquity or from our, our life experiences that cause um, or retards our ability to access that truth that is written deep in our core. Right, And so part of self-governance is making those crooked paths straight. How do we access the truth of who we are? Because he's written his values. So he's written his laws on our hearts, in our minds and on our hearts. That's the same thing as saying the Lord has written the knowledge of him in us. That's his value system. He's written his value statements within us. So the whole point of self-governance is to create, is, is to cause the crooked paths that we've built straight in order to access that easily. Okay, and then I went on to say, I'm almost finished with the recap, I went, um, I went on to say that it's the inner chaos that affects our ability to access that truth. And I'm, I went on to explain, you know, what creates, what, what are some of the things that create inner chaos? And then I listed things like betrayal and pain, disappointment, trauma and grief. So all the bad stuff. And then I went on to say that self-governance is not a construct. It's not something that you have to, like, you, know, you have to get it exactly right and it only looks one way. It's an entire heavenly economy. Um, and that's pretty much the recap from session one. Do you guys remember some of that? Yep, very good, very good. Okay, but today's going to be more about the how-tos. So uh, I think last week I kind of covered the what is. But I wanted to focus specifically on the how-tos today. So, it, you know, we can't, you can't reduce the inner world to a formula, but this is more unpacking um, the, the landscape and how the landscape was formed. Because if we understand the why, we can then implement strategy to the how-tos. So um, that's, that's what we're focusing on. Um, and the area specifically that I felt the Lord breathe on during the course of the week, I had a completely different word written down. 
And then I think maybe Tuesday, the Lord just completely shifted it on me. And what I felt like he wanted me to focus on today was the area of false responsibility. (laughs) Okay. Now, when... So false responsibility, which I'm going to unpack. I believe, this is my opinion, that false responsibility is a major contributing factor to our building crooked paths. It is, I talked, I talked last week about if we don't have good godly self-governance, we're, we're, running, we're running according to a corrupt constitution, okay? It's a corrupt governance. And false responsibility makes for a corrupt governance. It's detrimental. Okay, am I talking too fast? Okay, good. All right, yay. Okay, um, and uh, I have spent years, um, you know, mapping the inner world, and it, it just—it wasn't like I thought about it. It was just how my life unfolded over the recent years, and the inner world fascinates me. And over the time, like you know, before it was before I knew that mapping and understanding, you know, inner healing and deliverance was on my scroll, I became fascinated by the inner world. You know, and I had the privilege of, you know, serving as a seer in people's sessions. And during that time, um, you have, you know, you see one or two things at a session, but I had a lot of time to map. So I would just scribble, scribble lots of diagrams, flowcharts, take lots of notes. Um, And so when I look back on, you know, the last, you know, five years that I've been doing that, I've, when it comes specifically to false responsibility, I have found that it, has, it is at the root of, the mo- of most of the issues that we have. False responsibility will be at, at, the, at the root of, you know, the, why we believe lies, you know, where we, where we um, you know, uh, trade illegitimately, where we enable bad behaviour or, or any, anything toxic, or where we abdicate our authority. So false responsibility is a common denominator, I have found, you know, throughout the conversation of the inner world. Um, and, you know, needless to say, it affects or hinders or compromises our ability to govern well. So let's just quickly unpack false responsibility. I'm going to break the, this part of the conversation into two or three different parts. So we are talking about false responsibility today. That is right down the centre of the conversation. So I'm going to be unpacking two, two or three different things that are going to help put more meat on the bone but we're always talking about false responsibility because I want to show you the relationship around false responsibility between the inner world and the external world. All right, jumping straight in. I said that governing requires three main things, responsibility, conviction, and objectivity, and I'm going to show you now a dynamic that demonstrates how all of those three things play out, okay? All right. So... Yeah, okay, all right. So basically, I want to unpack firstly the knowledge of good and evil. So what happens is this. We are exposed throughout the entire day from the moment we wake up, our, we wake up and we open our eyes to the minute we, you know, we, we fall asleep. All of our conscious waking hours, we are exposed to knowledge of good and evil, right? It's information. We're constantly subject to information, now, as I mentioned last week, that we are beings of survival, and part of that, I mean, the, survival serves us. Survival's not a bad thing, right? But part of that, part of our, our, you know, our hardware, our default programming is that we are wired to avoid discomfort, emotional pain, physical pain. Um, that's, we're wired to avoid that, hence disassociation, okay? But all of these things just happen so quickly that we begin to build in a way, and I'm going to unpack this in detail, we begin to build in a way where because it's so lightning quick, we can't, we can't distinguish between what is life-threatening and what is just uncomfortable here. Now, I'm not talking about now as adults. A lot of this stuff happens when we're younger, our developmental years. And so we, we, for, for whatever reason, we see something that is, you know, quite confronting or we hear, we're exposed, we, we are exposed to some sort of substance or information. And in the moment, so information, it remains information. Information in the moment that we don't feel resourced to navigate. Now, this is all happening at lightning speed internally, okay? We don't feel resourced to navigate, so we are left with two options, now, I'm going to go over this again and again, so don't worry if it goes too quick the first time. 
but we're exposed to information. It puts some sort of demand on us. We don't, subconsciously, we know that we're not resourced to navigate the information. And because we're beings of survival, we have to make a choice. And our choice is this. Now, we're not aware of this choice. This is all subconscious, all right? The choices are, this is what I've mapped, okay? This is not black and white. This is what I have found and what I truly believe. We, the choices are, counter this information with truth. Counter the knowledge of good and evil with, with tree of life. Or come into agreement with it because I don't know what else to do with it and I need to make the grating, the conflict stop. We are designed to avoid conflict, internal conflict, internal chaos. We're, we're designed to avoid that substance. That's human, that's part of our survival instincts. Okay, so we either counter the information with truth, tree of life, or we come into agreement with the information. Now, really quickly, I want to unpack how that works. When you're exposed to information, everything is made of words. Every single thing is made of words. Jesus is the word. We are a word. When the Lord created, he used his mouth. So everything, is, everything speaks, everything preaches. And Todd was saying that last Sunday morning as well. He used it in a different context, but the same thing. So most of us, have been exposed to knowledge of good and evil that we in the moment didn't feel resourced to navigate, didn't have the capacity to, to rightly divide. Therefore, we came into agreement in some way, betrayed ourselves, the Jeremiah 31, 33 truth, and we formed a core belief. Now, I'm going to go back over that in detail, like I said. Okay. Actually, I'm going to do that now. If you're taking notes, I'll give you like cues and then I'll unpack it. So in a nutshell, this is what it looks like. We, by design, have to make sense of information. Okay? So if you're, right, if you're taking notes, the first thing I would write is that we have to make sense of something, of, of an issue, of something we're exposed to and that we, have to, we are designed to make sense of it. Why are we designed to make sense of it? Because if it is information that is beyond our capacity, beyond our resource, it triggers survival. Okay? Now, your inner world doesn't necessarily understand the difference between a lion chasing you or extreme shame or fear or, or um, humiliation or pain, right? The heart only understands the threshold that it's brought to. Okay? So, we have to make sense of something. The reason why making sense of something is so important to our inner world subconsciously is because it gives us a sense of control. Okay? So we're exposed to something. There's some sort of assault, you know, coming, whether it's through words or feelings or you're seeing something that is quite confronting. Bang, you are exposed to the knowledge of good and evil. It makes a subconscious demand on your inner world and if we don't have those pillars of truth, now, most of us as children, we don't have had the opportunity to develop those things. That's why the enemy comes in a lot when we're younger, right? But anyway, just going back to what I was saying, it makes a demand on our inner world. We don't like pain, fear, you know, loss, emotional pain, discomfort, confusion. We don't like that. So we have to do something. We have to trump the moment in some way to feel that we have a sense of control, some level of control. And if we don't have tr access to truth to counter that with, we come into, subconsciously come into agreement with the, with the, the substance or the information that is coming toward us. We come into agreement with it because that way we have the ability to disassociate. Right? Does that make sense? Oh, I'll, I'll keep explaining this, Okay. So making sense of something, give, it's really hot in here. Do we, are we, can, can we, is that, just something, yeah, maybe not that one, maybe just that one. Okay. So it gives us a sense of control. Now, I said last week that disassociation is a God-given coping mechanism. Disassociation is not sin. It is something that he has allowed um, our, our inner world to be able to do to escape something in the moment. Okay. 
So we come into agreement with whatever this thing is preaching to us. And in order to come into agreement with it, we have to deny part of truth. The truth, according to Jeremiah 31.3, that was written of us. Okay, so someone who's bullied in the schoolyard. Bullied um, and, and, you know, one lunchtime, too many kids jump on the bandwagon and it becomes too much of an assault in the moment. And little Johnny, you know, poor little Johnny. Why, why did this, why is it always little Johnny? Anyway, little Johnny in the moment, okay, I, I could handle one kid in the corridor on the way to the bathroom, but now I've, I've got like a two or three kids and, and now the, the, you know, the girls that are playing, you know, skipping rope over there are now looking and now, you know, the teacher's nowhere near. And, and so all of a sudden there's an assault. There, there's, a, there's a whole lot going on that's external information for little Johnny. And little Johnny doesn't have enough information to counter, doesn't have enough truth to counter the mean things that they're saying to him. So little Johnny comes into agreement with what they're saying by betraying himself and disassociating. And and most of the time, this doesn't happen every single time, but I have seen this time and time and again. Most of the time, little Johnny can't afford to have this conflicting information. He has to do something with it. So he comes into agreement with it. He adopts an external value. Adopts an an external value. And he forms a core belief. Ah, this is happening because I'm not good enough. And so the next time little Johnny is exposed to some sort of, you know, um, prejudice or discrimination or, or, you know, bullying, little Johnny knows how he can control his inner world at the time and he grabs that information. He goes, I know what to do with this. I know exactly where to put this. It goes on the foundation of I'm not good enough. That is a a way that we build in in the inner world. Okay? All right. So I said, I said um, last week and today, I said that one of the things that, re- that governance requires is conviction, right? We need, to be, we need to believe in something that is greater than just the feels. Good governance requires levels of conviction, okay? Here we have a counterfeit conviction. Here we have little Johnny creating a core belief that is built on a lie, and that, is, that has now become part of his, his constitution. Part of his constitution is, I'm not good enough. Self-betrayal. So this is uh, part of, you know, the outworking of self-betrayal. I'm not going to be unpacking self-betrayal today. I'm going to be doing that later in, in the series. But this is, this is the beginning of self-betrayal. Now... What we believe that we can control, right? So whenever little Johnny's exposed to anything that his heart feels he's being, you know, shamed or bullied or whatever, he's able to take that and go, I know what this is, is because I'm not good enough. He continues to build, right? What we believe that we can control, we take responsibility for, right? I'll say that again. What we tell ourselves, what we choose to believe, what our core beliefs are built on, what we believe, essentially, we take responsibility for. And that was the other thing that I said, that good governance requires taking responsibility, but the right type of responsibility. False responsibility makes for bad governance, toxic governance. And when we take false responsibility for something, even though it happens in these developmental years, you know, poor Johnny, what was he going to do? And this is true for, like, this is, I, I can't tell you how many little Johnny moments I've had, right? When we do this, this is where, this is, because we talked on that slide, it says understanding the mechanics of the inner world in conjunction with the spirit world. I probably should have added a word to that, and that word should have been legalities, So understanding self-governance is basically saying, understanding the mechanics, because we build, the mechanics of the inner world in conjunction with how they relate to, how they're impacted by the legalities of the spirit world. Okay, so when we believe, when we, we, account of it conviction, when, when we believe something even though it's a lie, according to the spirit world, we are coming into agreement, it's agreement, right? We are taking responsibility for something, okay? And it becomes, it becomes a loan that we can't service, right? Because we believe we can control. 
if we believe we can control something, we're taking a responsibility for it. But the truth is, little Johnny's not going to be able to control what he's exposed to all the days of his life. And when we take on a loan that we can't service, it brings judgment on us. It creates corrupt, toxic self-governance. Is everyone okay? Okay. So we see there the three things that I mentioned around um, you know, what good governance requires. We see the what not to do's. We see how those things get, get twisted and perverted from, you know, from lightning speed in a mechanics on a day-to-day basis. We've taken false responsibility for something. We, we take responsibility for something we only have partial understanding of. Because little Johnny has only got access to his, his one-dimensional view of, what, of the external information. Moving quickly along, I'm going to move straight into sharing some keys on how to trade out of false responsibility. (laughs) I said today was going to be a how-to, all right. (laughs) How do we trade out of false responsibility? Um, But before, like, I'm going to go straight into that, but first we need to understand a a couple of major things. This is what helped me understand how to trade out of false responsibility. Okay? So we need to understand the difference between a few major things. Number one, the difference between truth and fact. Sorry, what am I talking about? Fact is what's happened. Okay? When something happens to us, it's fact. It's a fact in our timeline. It's happened to us. It's reality right? But it's not the truth. Truth is conviction. Truth is something that defines. Truth is a defining agent, right? So fact, we're exposed to something, we, we, we're subject to something, we suffer something. That is fact. Everything is made of words. And in the moment that thing speaks to us and it becomes, we adopt the external value and it becomes our truth, and so we believe whatever, that, whatever the injustice or whatever the, the issue was preaching to us. So there is a difference between fact and truth. Only, again, truth. If we're going to talk about truth, there's only one truth. Truth is a man. Truth isn't something that he does. He is truth. So if we say that there is a difference between fact and truth, what we're saying is fact is something that's happened to us but only the Lord defines me in this. That's what we're saying. Now, facts are really important to the Lord. He doesn't want us to move on and go, all right, sweetie, that wasn't truth. It's just a fact to pick up and let's go. That's not, that, that, that is not what I'm saying. Fact, facts are important to the Lord. So much so that it says in the book of Revelations, it says that they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So the facts that we endure, the facts that have become our reality throughout our life become our testimony, right? So facts and what we go through are very important to the Lord. It's the truth that, or the, the counterfeit truth that we come into agreement with through the facts because we confuse facts for truth. If I got assaulted on, my way, on the way to the car, you know, after like, you know, shopping, in that moment, in that moment where, you know, you, you're, you're, okay, t- c- we're going to call today slowing down the matrix. Okay. All right. I want to explain some things. When we are subject or exposed to some sort of, you know, negative information, information can be when somebody, you know, a physical assault, emotional assault, whatever it is, when we're subject to it, what's happening at lightning speed is we're having to make sense of it. I said that before. We're having to make sense of it because it's speaking to us. Things don't happen in isolation. So when we are being, you know, uh, you know when we're being terrorized or, 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 or tormented or whatever it is, the enemy uses those things as avenues, as channels to attach his preach to it. Everything is always speaking. Okay? 
So if it, so, it's in that moment, if we don't have the internal pillars of truth, if we don't know how to plug into the tree of life to counter that, that preach, we are going to yield to that preach. Right? Okay. So the Lord never denies us our, our, um, our facts. He uses them. It becomes testimony. But we're not to confuse truth for fact. The other thing that I wanted to, um, before I, I, I unpack the how-to, the other difference um, I said was another major factor when talking about false responsibility was a difference between torment and trauma. They're two very different things. Okay, so the first one was the difference between truth and fact. If we don't have the ability to understand the difference between truth and fact, it's going to be very easy to take on false responsibility. And the other one was the difference between torment and trauma. Okay, torment is when we suffer. This is a dictionary meaning as well. Torment is when we suffer mental or physical anguish. That's torment. It's an external factor. So torment is something that we suffer externally. Okay? It can be very overwhelming, but it's still, torment is still always external. Trauma is the residue that we're left with. It's the thing that marks us internally. Now, you can have physical trauma, which I'm going to go into after, but I'm talking right now the difference between torment. So torment is external, and we, we can suffer torment externally. It's as soon as it lands in the inner world, that's when it's trauma. And when it does that, coming into agreement with an external factor, external factor is torment, you take responsibility for the torment by making it your truth. It defies what the Lord has written in us and it defines us. And that's what becomes, that's, it, it's a huge hook. That's what becomes how we partner with the enemy to raise a, a core belief, a value that, that is in direct contrast to the truth that he's written in us. We raise up a value system that is against the knowledge of God. On torment and trauma, you know, Jesus was tormented, but he wasn't traumatized. Jesus was tormented. Can you put up Luke twenty two forty four? So this is when he's in the garden. I'm just going to read just where it says here. And being in agony. That word agony in the Greek means anguish. So Jesus suffered torment. So much so that he sweat blood. But he never came into a grip. He was wrestling his will. Okay? So he never went into fear. He was wrestling his will. And so that word there, he being in agony, he being in anguish, he suffered torment, but it never marked his inner world. It never landed internally. It never defined his identity. He suffered trauma on the physical plane. We know that. And he had to because he had to become the curse. So he suffered. It marked, it marked him spiritually. It marked him in the physical plane, but it never touched his identity. It never touched his core. He always had the, the, the solid truth in his core identity. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So in other words, Jesus never took false responsibility. His responsibility was to take on the curse and his body became the curse. He took that responsibility, but he never allowed the torment to define his identity. He never took false responsibility. He never betrayed himself and he didn't betray what the father had written in him. Okay, so we see here how quickly this type of process happens. It's lightning speed. We take on false responsibility in the subconscious realm. So I'm still going to show you the how-to, um, but I have to continue to explain trauma. You know, this is the part of the preacher you would normally throw in in your story, your own personal experience, but... Because we're talking about trauma, I just wanted to unpack this. Instead of a story, um, actually it is a story, but it's a story from the Old Testament. I just really want to, I want to, I want to fully dissect trauma. 
Because if we really understand the difference between torment and, you know, people, people feel shame when they suffer torment because they think that they've, that they've you know, um, they've come into agreement with the enemy just because they're exposed to levels of torment. He uses anything to, to, to um, hook in levels of shame, false responsibility. But anyway, I'm going, I'm going ahead. So I just want to unpack trauma um, in, in detail. So, all right. Now, I, first thing I'm going to do is apologize to those of you who have heard this a thousand times, but it's, it's just such a good um, demonstration of, of one of the playbooks of the enemy. So enjoy. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to share with you the uh, mechanics of the spirit world when it comes to trauma. Starts with torment. It's just the perfect demonstration of everything I'm saying today. So can you put up um, 1 Samuel 11? So 1 Samuel 11, it's just two verses. That's all I'm doing. It, we see here an interaction between a, a, a part of Israel and um, the Ammonites, I think it is. All right. So, no, um, the uh, one to two? Yes, beautiful. Okay, so this is, yeah, first one. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead and all the... Okay, you know what? He came around Israel, okay? So Nahash and the Ammonites, he brought, Nahash is the king. He brought his army and he encamped around a particular portion of Israel, right? And the elders of Israel, the elders of Israel went out to meet him. So they're just there and they see the enemy encamped around them, okay? Information. And they run out there and they basically say to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. That's a massive statement right there. I'm going to unpack this in detail. I'll just quickly read the next verse. Um, and, and Nahash's response to the elders is, only on one condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may put out all of your right eyes and bring reproach, or that I may lay it up as a reproach against Israel. That's a very interesting interaction. This is, when I was reading this, the Lord said to me, he, goes, he said, this is one of the greatest playbooks. And this is, in my opinion, because when we see how, how, how it actually works, it's so empowering. So, all right. Now, that interaction, two, basically two, two sentences. The enemy comes and encamps around Israel. The elders of Israel run out and they say, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. Now, those words are very powerful because the word covenant is a contract. So they were talking legal terms now. Make a legal, legally binding contract with us and we will serve you. The word serve in the original Hebrew means to, I mean, it means many things. It means to be completely subject to that, that, that entity. It means that we will, we will um, worship your God. We will give up our identities. We will sell our, our freedom and our children's freedom. We will pay taxes to you. So we take on your values. We completely you know, let go of our identities and we take on your values and, and you will define us. That's, that, that's what that means, right? And it's legally binding. And Nahash, who was very clever, added a disclaimer. Is that the right word? Disclaimer? Rachel? Disclaimer? Legal, a legal, like a, a legal party bag, right? This is, this is one that you get for free. <laughs> that's how I see disclaimers. <laughs> So Nahash adds a disclaimer to that, and, or whatever that word is, and he says, he says, only on one condition will I make a covenant with you. Now, if you've got to think about it, Nahash had his army there, and had, had there been a battle, he had already prepared himself that I'm probably going to, there's probably going to be some blood drawn, might lose some men, might lose some horses, going to lose some of these arrows that we spend months shaping and forming and crafting. But now... The Israelites just run out to him and they pretty much say, it's all good. You, 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 just, you don't have to do anything. We completely surrender. Now, he could have taken it. He could have taken them up on the offer. It was just too easy. But instead, he says, and this is the, Nahash's name actually means serpent. So pretty much the devil said, they're having a conversation with the devil. The devil said, and this is what he says to us, only on this one condition will I take you that will I rob you of your identities? Only on one condition will I, you know, will you be completely subject to me? Is if I pull out all of your right eyeballs, that I may lay it up as a reproach against Israel. So what we see here is make an agreement with us, make a covenant. 
Agreement. So I'm going to unpack to you now really quickly. You ready? What we see here is this. External information, all it was was knowledge of good and evil. It was external information. They came into agreement. They drew their own conclusions. We're finished. They run out there, so they came into agreement with a lie. They believed the lie. Okay? Why was it a lie? Because right at the end of chapter 10, Samuel appoints Saul as king. Now, why would God do that if the next day or the next month, Nahash was going to come and rule the Israelites? So the Lord had already established his knowledge. This is your king. Then we have this interaction. The enemy comes and encamps around Israel, and Israel forget everything that the Lord said, and they run out and they come into agreement with a lie. The lie was, we're here, and we're going to take you. Okay? So the Lord's truth was never taken into account. So they come into agreement with a lie. And the, coming to agreement with a lie, now this is, this is back in the olden days, but this is current today. This is a spiritual dynamic that is in play today. So whenever we come into agreement with a lie, what we're actually doing is we're, is we're again, obviously foregoing the truth that's written in us, but we have inherited now a clause, a clause that says, I'm going to pull out all of your eyes that I may lay it up as a reproach against Israel. So we see there that he was going to then traumatize them. He was going to incapacitate them. Half blind men can't, don't, they're, they're, they're compromised in battle. Totally compromised. And it, it would have been shame. So we see there that the, the enemy's plans is to perpetuate trauma as an extra add-on, as a bonus for when we come into agreement with a lie. That I may lay it up as a reproach against Israel. Lay reproach, the word lay means to mark. And that word is used when God marked Cain. And when God marked Cain, it was to create a spiritual dynamic that followed him all the days of his life. Right? Nothing was going to undo that mark. Nothing was going to undo the spiritual dynamic that had attached itself to Cain. So we see here that the enemy can do the same thing. The enemy can mark us in the spirit that causes dynamics to follow us all of our days. For Cain, it was protection. For the, but when the enemy does it, it's always to our detriment. Okay? It allows cycles to follow us all of our days. Okay? So that I may lay reproach. And the word reproach there means shame and guilt. Now, shame and guilt is taking false responsibility for something. Shame is not something that we produce ourselves. Shame is a response to something we don't, we don't understand or we keep in the darkness, we don't bring out into the light. In his light, we see light, for with you is the fountain of life. So we see here trauma and torment. So it started off in torment. Sorry, my tissue's just doing funny things. There we go. Okay. Yes, I store tissues. <laughs> Just wog things. Okay. All right. So it was, <laughs> it, was, it was just there. It was bothering me. And I thought everyone could see it. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> so, all right. So we see there that it started off as torment. Torment is physical or mental anguish. Okay. The enemy encamped around Israel. That's torment. But they came into agreement with what the torment was preaching to them, which gave the enemy a legal right to land trauma. So they're bound by the lie with their agreement to the lie, but now they've inherited trauma. So trauma is when we come into agreement with the torment. Does that make sense? Okay. So what we see here is that 1 Samuel 11 is a really good way of revealing the matrix of false responsibility. All right. So how, Christina, how, how do we do this? How do we not um, Israelite it? We have to learn how to slow down the matrix. And that's what we're going to go into now. I'm going to, I'm going to show you how, how um, I've learnt to, to slow down the matrix. When you slow down the matrix, I'm talking about interactions. I'm talking about when you're exposed to something. I'm talking about when you suffer torment. Anytime you're exposed to the knowledge of good and evil, it's a matrix. 
I'm going to teach you now how to, how to slow it down. But when you do that, when you develop an ability to slow down the matrix, you actually develop an, an ability to rightly divide. It begins to develop a grid of, for objectivity. Because had the Israelites been, been able to process objectively on that day, they would have said, wait a minute. But I'm going to unpack that in a second. Okay. Slowing down the matrix. is done pretty much like this. When you are exposed to information, remember it's only just information. Even when we are subject to levels of assault, like physical assault or, or whatever, like it's now gone past just data and we're now taking it within ourselves, this is something that you can do in the moment. This is something that you can do after the fact, okay, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do right at the end of the service. I'm going to try and facilitate something. Um, but let's just go for the purposes of this conversation right now. Let's just go with information, okay? So we'll, we'll use physical trauma. Like, just, We'll leave that for a second. It's just always just information. That's all it is. It is knowledge of good and evil. So what we have to be able to do is slow down the matrix and hold it out here and see it for what it is by leaning into what it's actually saying to us. When we get used to just functioning, things happen like this, and we just, we just plug and play and we just go into, oh, I know what to do with this, this goes here because I'm, I'm this. So it's, it's being able to slow it right down and go, what's this actually saying to me? When we are exposed to information through somebody else, somebody comes at us and they're, they're quite confronting or combative, that makes a demand. You feel the demand on your inner world to respond or to survive. You actually don't, you're not obligated to. You are not obligated to service that demand. You actually can give yourself permission to hold it out there where it is by not taking false responsibility for it because when, when, when we meet people where they're at, when we meet external information for where it's at, we're taking false responsibility. The Israelites could have just stayed there. They were simply encamped. They could have just stayed there like this. Like, I mean, this is going to be interesting. But they went out. Make a covenant and we'll serve you. They took responsibility for the standoff. Okay? All right. So we have to slow it right down. Because when we do that, we give an opportunity to see something in his light. How do we do that? We are bringing a situation... Oh, no, no, no. Oh, something's going to say. Okay. When you slow it right down and you lean into what it's actually saying to you, you see that it's actually not just the issue that you're facing. You're hearing the substance that is being preached through it. Okay? You are empowered, totally empowered to deal with an issue or a situation consciously. But when the enemy uses that as an avenue to attach demonic substance subconsciously, you won't know about it until it's caused some sort of fruit in your world. So we slow it right down. We remove ourselves from the issue. This is how we guard our heart. We remove ourselves from the issue and we give an opportunity to see it in his light. Now, when you do that, when you give yourself an opportunity to remove your heart from it and hold it out here and lean into what it's saying, you, you actually begin to siphon. So you actually begin to strip the power of that thing. Because when you take responsibility for it, it now becomes messy because now it's, it's attached to your inner world and you can't tell you know, what's you and what's not. So by holding it out here, you actually starve its ability to attach, okay? Because you're going to be taxed by that lie. We will serve you. We will pay taxes. Your God will be our God. That's what covenant with the enemy means. Okay, so anyway, moving on, we're slowing down the matrix. We give ourselves permission to stop in the moment. Now, this is going to be very difficult it can be very difficult to do if you're not used to it and doing it straight off the bat. So what I have found is I implemented this for things that I've already experienced. Okay? It's much easier because you're not, you're not feeling threatened in the moment. You don't feel the need to survive in the moment. And that's what I want to facilitate toward the end. But we're, we're giving ourselves permission to remove our heart, guard our heart, remove it from the issue that's outplaying 
slowing the matrix right down and going, is this a me problem or is this a them problem? Is this a me problem or is this something that the enemy is using to try and attach his preach to it subconsciously? Now, I'm going to come back to this, but I have to keep moving forward. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to come back to this. And I want to land on this subject. Jesus was able to do this straight off the bat because he had developed a lifestyle of not allowing himself to form a sense of self or identity outside of the Lord. Now, I said before that when we're younger, we don't, we, we, we don't know what, what our, the internal truth is, the, the pillars are, right? So we form our sense of self. We actually form our identities based on the information that we're having to navigate, okay? Now, is everyone all right? Yeah, very good, okay. So Jesus was able to maintain a posture of perfect self-governance. And I believe the primary factor for that was the fear of the Lord. And you guys know this really, really well. Um, You want to put up Isaiah 11.3, just really quickly. Todd mentioned this this morning. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. So it's prophesying about Jesus. His delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. So we see there, right, this is how the enemy... This is how we have access to knowledge of good and evil, by what our eyes see, what our ears hear, and what we experience and what we feel, okay? So Jesus had already, the word delight means to have something quickened. Jesus had cultivated a lifestyle where the fear of the Lord was quickened to him, okay? So it's impossible to serve two masters. So Jesus feared the Lord. Fear is awe. It's reverence. It's not timid, timidity or dread, okay? So he, he knew that he had truth written in him. He knew that he carried the Lord's value system like each and every one of us. He knew that. So he cultivated a lifestyle where he measured everything up against truth. He didn't form a sense of self or ego outside of the truth that the Lord had written in him. And he did that by, like I said, cultivating a lifestyle at being one with the Father, So if we want to begin to cultivate a lifestyle of the fear of the Lord, it looks like time. It looks like time. It looks like intimacy. It looks like vulnerability with the Lord. You know, and I wasn't, I wish I I followed Jesus in the first 12 years of his life. I would have loved to have seen what that looked like. How by the age of 12 did he know? I mean, I know that's, you know, in, in Hebrew culture that you're an adult by the time you're 12, but he so knew who he was. What did that look like? What did his developmental time look like? Now, luckily, I don't have to explain that because I don't know. No one knows it. But we know that he never saw himself outside of the Father. We know that he was at all times able to lean in and be aware of what the Father was doing. He never acted on his own accord. We know that. He was in such agreement with what the Lord had written in him. Even unto torture and humiliation, even during the, the, the torment. Now, the torment would have been overwhelming. Even when he was tortured, shamed, stripped naked before people in his community, just even in that time, he still was able to always see what the father was doing. He never took his eyes off the father. It's that he he had straight paths to the truth. He had straight paths because he had never taken false responsibility for what the torment was saying to him from day one when he was being tormented in the desert, when he was fasting. He didn't lean on any sense of self. The first thing that came out of his mouth is, it is written. It is written. It is written. The constitution that he has put in me, it is written. That's, that's how he combated the, um, the lies. It is written. He had never formed a sense of self outside of the Father. And like I said, even, even when he was being tortured and, and, and um, you know, experiencing extreme levels of, of torment and physical trauma, it only ever landed physically and never landed inside because he never took his eyes off the Father. Even until the last moment where he said, why have you, why, why have you turned away? Jesus never took his eyes off the Father. So we see there that we can create pathways that are so straight that even we're in the moment where the assault is so great, we have an ability to look straight into truth. 
and not, even, and not allow what we're experiencing to, to mark and form our identity. So he never took false responsibility for anything that contradicted what the Lord had written in him. You know what? Let's go back to that story in the Old Testament really quickly, like Saul. So how did they get out of the eyeball situation? What happened? It says, um, don't put it up, Nikki, it's all right. Um, So when when Nahash pretty much said, only on one condition will I make an agreement with you, that I may pull out all your eyeballs, the Israelites kind of freaked out and they said, we need some time, give us some time. And then they went back to their to their their place, and they went into crazy levels of grief and mourning. Right, and word spread to Saul, and it says that when Saul found out what was happening, he didn't need time to think about it. It says as soon as Saul found out that a righteous anger came up, and the spirit of God landed on him. It says the spirit of God came on Saul. Why? Because Saul had just been appointed king. Saul was in agreement with what the Lord had said for Israel in that season. Read the end of chapter 10, 1 Samuel chapter 10. It says, Saul and the valiant men that were with him went back to his hometown after Samuel had announced it. Now, valiant men, very, very quickly, what does valiant mean? Why are they special? So Saul and the valiant men whose hearts the Lord touched, is the Lord exclusive? No. What, what, so the clue there is valiant. What does the Bible say about, what, what, is, what does that mean? What does valiant men mean? Valiant is the word in the original Hebrew is describing a resource. So automatically we see that the valiant men and Saul had a heart that was an available resource to the Lord. And the root word of that word resource means to be caused to wait in anguish, to be forced to tremble, to forced to give birth. All of those things are outside of our control. All of those things, if you're forced, if you're caused to tremble, that is something that's involuntary that's happening. That's a reaction that's happening, right, out of your control. Giving birth, ain't nothing going to stop that process. It's, it's, once it starts, it's, it's going to happen. Being forced to wait in anguish, that's pretty much describing, it's a level of torment. It's describing a process that you have completely no control in. You're waiting you're waiting in anguish. You're waiting for an outcome that is completely out of your control, right? Those things, everything I've just said is describing a posture of inferiority, submission, right? That's, that's what is required to have a heart that is available as a resource before him. That is the making of the fear of the Lord, a heart that creates a space, a heart that embraces the fear of the Lord. So Saul, it says that when Saul heard the news, Saul got really angry. And it says that the Spirit of God came on him. The word came there means to cause, to break forth and prosper. So it carries a verdict. That word came basically means heaven's moving and there's nothing stopping it. So we need to cultivate a heart that is okay with being inferior before the Lord, with being submissive unto the Lord. That creates a landing space for the Spirit of God to come. The only responsibility taken there is, Lord, whatever you say, not false responsibility. The others took false responsibility and it caused them to spin out and go into anguish and weeping and mourning. They had already succumbed to, to the you know, inevitable. But the people whose hearts were available as a resource to the Lord, people who had cultivated a fear of the Lord, they came into agreement with what the Lord had said over Israel, allowed the Spirit of God to come, which caused them to break forth and prosper. And so great was the, was the um, uh, victory over the Ammonites that it is documented in that portion of Scripture that when, the, when, when Saul came with his men against the Ammonites, that so great was the victory that no two men were seen running and fleeing away together. So two Ammonites couldn't even find each other to run away together. That's how scattered they were. That's what the, can you imagine the annihilation, right? So the, the well, I don't even know why I'm talking about this. Why am I talking about this? Okay, yeah, all right. So, so we see there, we see there the enemy's playbook through torment that he hopes to traumatize through. But first we have to come into agreement with the torment. But we're not like Jesus. We're not perfect like him. A lot of us are doing it, we're back engineering our way. 
A lot of us are having to undo a lot of a lot of the the um, a lot of the lies we've believed and 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 how our identity had been twisted along the way. And it's a very easy thing to do. And I'm gonna I'm gonna take you guys through this now. And I wanna when Nikki, can you put the pads on, please? I'm I'm going to now take you through, for those of you who are willing to do it, you don't have to do it. If you're not comfortable doing this here through communion, just take notes and do it by yourself. It's totally fine. But I want to show you the steps of, um, of how to easily rewrite a moment that we took on false responsibility, which caused us to develop toxic levels of self-governance because we have inner conflict, that we've betrayed ourselves. So this is what I'm going to do. Again, um, for the, yeah, I'm going to lead you through a process that is so easy to do. I want you to give yourself permission to allow the Holy Spirit to bring up one of those moments where you begin to corrupt your own levels of self-governance, where you took on false responsibility. And then He will quicken that to you. If we, if we posture ourselves to hear and see, He will quicken to you a moment where you took on false responsibility. And we're going to give ourselves a, we're going to give ourselves permission to use this opportunity to see things in His light. Because the more we bear witness to His light, the more that we see His character and His nature. And and if if you're there, if you can actually see a moment or a season where you took on false responsibility, I want you to see that it was fact. It was fact that actually took place in your timeline and the Lord honours that, but it wasn't the truth. Truth is a man and he was right there. It says in the Word that he has never left us nor forsaken us. Truth is a man and he was right there in that moment. We just weren't aware of him. Had we been aware of Him in that moment, the revelation of of His presence would begin to preach greater things, would begin to preach and reveal the truth that would completely diminish the demonic substance that we believed instead. He was right there in that moment. He was right there through that season. And He didn't just arrive. Jesus doesn't arrive in a moment. It says He has never left us nor forsaken us. So we are not introducing truth to a moment. We are introducing ourselves to truth. We are introducing ourselves and our perception and our experience to the fact that truth was right there and we're giving ourselves an opportunity to see truth for what it is and not what the enemy would have us believe it was. Had we been aware of Him, we would never have come into agreement with a lie. And if you are able to bear witness to the truth the man was there in that moment. Begin to lean into his substance. Begin to lean into his testimony. Begin to lean into what that preaches to you. In your light, we will see light. For with you is the fountain of life. In you is the ability to completely rejuvenate and restore and correct that which has become sick that which has become toxic and tainted. And in that moment, you can completely surrender the, the yoke that you took, that, that weight that you, you bore 
through false responsibility. You get to surrender that to Him now. Truth is a man, but he's also a place, he's a realm. And once you give yourself permission to completely surrender that false responsibility, that burden, that yoke that's been crushing you, that's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil does. It crushes our soul. So we are now surrendering to Him that crushing weight. Even if you made your bed in Sheol, He is right there. He has never left you nor forsaken you. Once you surrender that crushing weight, that false responsibility, give yourself permission to enter into the man, Jesus Christ. He is a, he is a man, but He's also a place. He is heaven. He is a realm. Enter. He is, the, he is a door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That Scripture is demonstrated in this one exercise. I am here. I have provided a way out. You are no longer obligated to remain in this place. You are no longer obligated to pay your taxes, your spiritual, emotional and mental and physical taxes to this lie. I am the way unto, through truth, I am the way unto life. And once you enter into the man, Jesus Christ, Give yourself permission to see that He never half does a work and He doesn't leave a stone unturned. Give yourself permission to see that He is the door and whatever door He shuts, no man or principality can open. He is the fullness, the entirety of deliverance. He is the fullness of wholeness. Once you enter into that place and you allow Him to close that door regarding that matter, He now has the opportunity to become the righteous breach between us and whatever that was that we had taken false responsibility for. The righteous breach where we look back on the fact of that part of our life simply as testimony because it was fact, but it's not the truth. We are now in truth and we are rewarded through the Word of our testimony that continues to magnify the goodness and the kindness of the Lord. So in that place, in that awareness of Him in a place that you've never been aware of Him before, feel free to take your communion in your time. You are now partaking at a level that you've not seen Him before. And while you're doing that, I just wanna add a couple of things before I finish. This whole thing is about taking false responsibility and how the enemy gets us to do it, right? When we no longer take false responsibility, it really, really helps us govern well. It helps us govern our friendships, relationships, boundaries, parenting, marriage. But also what it does it actually gives us, it automatically gives us an ability to weigh and scrutinise the information that we come across every single day. We're no longer compromised. When we scrutinise and we slow down the matrix, when we really begin to build that muscle of slowing down the matrix, what that actually does, it allows it allows the enemy to take responsibility for what he's trying to pass on to you. And when we do that, the judgment of the Lord can land. The judgment of the Lord can land where it's meant to, and that's on the enemy, not on us. 
we are judged for being in our own ways and leaning on our own understanding. How do we get there? By taking false responsibility. So, no longer taking false responsibility is a great place to start when aligning unto godly, healthy self-governance. I'm going to close the meeting there, but if you're, you know, if you're encountering him, please feel free to just to sit in that, but the meeting is closed. Um, yeah, enjoy. I have no homework this time. <laughs>